Welcome back, everyone, to Sex and Couples Therapy with the Happy Ending Therapist. I'm Donna Harris-Richards, LICSW and Certified Sex Therapist, your sex-positive sex and couples therapist. And I'm here with my beautiful producer, Vicki, today. And we are going to talk about mental health because May is the Mental Health Month. And I'd like to say my mission, if I if I may. Um, the mission of Sex and Couples Therapy with Certified Sex Therapist Donna Harris-Richards is to help individuals, couples, and families embrace and integrate sex-positive thinking into daily life for optimal health, including sexual health and wellness. You know, we go for annual mammograms, gynecological exams, and prostate exams for physical sexual health. We owe ourselves checkups on the emotional and mental health aspects of sexual health for optimal health and wellness. How's that, Vicki? Sounds great. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Oh, good. How are you? I'm doing very well. The sun is shining today. Happy girl. How are you? Oh yeah, I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It is shining and it's warm. I I know you're the plant gal, so I just want you to know <laughs> that yesterday for the first time, we're recording this in April, by the way, everybody. Um, and yesterday for the first time I went out and bought two pots of pansies. That's amazing. Two yellow pansies. So exciting. And I put them in my yard. And it's just, you know, you look at them and, and your mood changes. Speaking of mental health, right? Yeah. I actually just got um, a lavender bush. Oh, so how nice. That was nice. my latest plant purchase. Christmas tree shop had them oh. uh, on sale. <laughs> and did you put it in the ground or do you have it inside? No, I have it in a pot inside. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. Speaking of pot, it's 420 today. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we are recording this on April 20th of 2021. Um, and we were just talking to our wonderful Justin in the back, who always does a great job engineering and recording for us um, about the significance of 420. So, um, yeah, pots and plants and spring. And actually today I'd like the listeners to know that, you know, we're recording this a couple of weeks before May begins. And today happens to be the day that we're waiting uh, that the jury is deliberating and we're waiting for the, the verdict on the Derek Chauvin trial. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it's kind of interesting because I wanted to talk about how um, couples therapy and, and sex therapy, of course, they overlap and they kind of intertwine. They can. Um, once again, if folks haven't heard, I'll say it again. I think repetition is is a good thing that couples therapy, the national average for couples to meet their goals is about 16 sessions, give or take, could be less or more. Sex therapy can be a lot shorter. It is often a lot shorter because it's only one aspect of the relationship. It can be as short as five sessions um, and, you know, maybe 10 or 12. So um, there you go. So it, there's a beginning, a middle and an end, and it's short term brief therapy. And that's that's ethical uh, because, you know, it's like if I go to the doctor with my little elbow problem I've had in the past and um, <laughs> big shout out to Dr. Beatty over there at Hawthorne Medical in our area or Stewart Medical. He cured me of all my aches and pains. I'm such a happy gal uh, because <laughs> of him. But if I go to the doctor and I have an ache or a pain and he assesses and then intervenes and treats and then there's no more pain, there's no more reason for me to come on back, right? So I'm done. So once we help people get through um, meeting their goals, you know, sort of move them on their way. If they need something in the future because there's another problem, they're always welcome to call uh, and we can work on whatever else might be coming up. And it's like we always say, Vicki, it's all normal. It's all normal. Everything's yeah. normal. <laughs> 
pretty much for the most part, except for some things um, which are normal. You know, we've talked about pain, physical pain. So if I'm working with a woman who may be experiencing pelvic pain or if I'm working with a, a, a men who may be experiencing erectile issues, I want them to go to the doctor and have everything ruled out again. You know, um, I just want folks to know that that's the, the really the ethical and best way to treat folks, make sure everything's going on okay with your health, and then come on back. Because usually the issues that couples are experiencing with the relationship or sexuality is rooted in anxiety. Okay. There's the keys to the kingdom, folks. So, you know, what do we do about that? How do we work with that? How do we treat that? Um, in a number of ways that we've talked about here and folks can find out when they come in. Um, a lot of it is just sort of exploring the root of where our thinking begins, right? Core beliefs, um, situational stressors uh, that may be going on in, in a person's life or, or a couple's life. Uh, recent changes, losses, et cetera, things like that. Um, but one of the things I wanted to focus on today um, are the challenges that we all face, couples face, um, related to, as we're talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, um, you know, as white people, I'm white, I'm, I'm Italian, I'm North, I'm Southern, sorry, I'm Southern Italian, Caucasian, um, and and I am um, currently actually doing a sort of year long uh, think tank or exploration about my own whiteness. Um, and and I think what happens sometimes for us in the world is if we want to have a more um, harmonious world, I'll say, um, it's important for us to be exploring ourselves first individually, um, and then how how we're thinking and our core beliefs and our experiences affect our relationship between ourselves and our partner, right? And then uh, family, you know, because I see families as well, and then on out to communities and the world. So I wanted to just focus today on on that kind of um, work that I do, where I'm really trying to help people see where we are, myself included, unaware of how we're thinking about things, you know, being like for myself, comfortable in my whiteness. How does that affect me in the world? Um, mm. How do I address race in the room? You know, when I'm working with uh, BIPOC populations, uh, you know, black people, indigenous people, people of color, um, L the LGBTQIA plus communities. Um, I, I need to be very aware of that and say, for example, to uh, black clients, what is it like for you working with a white therapist? You know, I've, I've counseled many and worked with many black uh, clients, men, women, um, of course, LGBTQIA. Um, and I'll say to them, you know, what is it like um, working with someone like myself? Let's talk about that. It, it, uh, particularly with, you know, even heterosexual couples, I'll say to the man in the coupling, you know, I'm a woman, you know, your wife is here in the room and you're the only man, right? So let's, I just want to know what your thoughts are about that. Um, and often they'll say, well, you know, so far it's good, but if the, anything comes up, I'll let you know. And I'll say, please yeah. do, because <laughs> yeah. I'm human, I'm flawed, I make mistakes. You know, I was calling somebody the other day, oh, by, by a nickname to the longer name. And I was so glad that he said to me, my name isn't the shorter part of his name. Uh, my name is the longer name. And I said, oh, thank you so much for telling me because here I was making a mistake and it's distracting, right? So we want to get right. rid of all the distractions so we can have a, a transparent heart-to-heart -heart collaboration for, for the best interest of my clients. Right? Absolutely. 
Um, so speaking of mental health, sexual health and good relationship increases odds for improved mental health. This is why I love this work because, you know, having been an LICSW for many years, um, that was lovely. And I felt like, yes, I could make a difference, but I started to see, as I've said before, um, when people were having issues in relationships, if I could work with them on the relationship, uh, there was so much improvement in anxiety, depression, all that. Um, so you know, particularly uh, regarding sexual functioning and anxiety in sex and couples therapy, folks learn to tolerate their anxiety for growth. Um, and the challenge of sex and couples therapy provides significant growth in a time limited setting, as we just talked about. You know, it could be, again, 16 sessions or less, maybe more. I mean, there are folks that are coming in longer term, and that's okay because hopefully they're, they're always sort of, we're working, we're working through problem by problem and sort of, you know, getting better and better all the time. And, and that's okay. Um, and and I, the one thing I wanted to talk about today and focus on is that the pain of any choice can hurt. So why not make the pain pay off, right? Whether the choice is, um, hmm, I don't know, how, how can I, uh, you know, if I can make I, a, I, sh go ahead. I think people get so nervous about the, the way I, I hear that is that people can get so nervous about making the wrong choice or the wrong decision. So sometimes their anxiety kind of pushes them in a direction where they don't make any choice at all. And making no choice at all is sometimes just <gasps> as, as bad as making the wrong choice. Yes. Um, yes. And I, th I think no matter what, working through things that are difficult, whether it's something that might bring you comfort in a you know, something that you do that might bring you comfort, even though it hinders your growth. Right. So whether that be my phone is overwhelming me, too many people are reaching out to me, so I'm just not going to answer anybody. And mm. then three days later, you're like, oh, my God, I haven't answered anybody back yet. And now I feel awkward <laughs> right. answering because it's been three days, you know, like things like that, where it brought right. you comfort in the moment because you could take a break. But then mm -hmm. you had to deal, you know, future self had to deal with that. And I think with therapy. Yeah present self is, is doing things to set future self up for success. And that's important. Yeah. That's nicely said. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's really beautiful. Thank you for saving me. My thoughts were wandering and I'm like, Wait, no, it's fine. I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. 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 So it makes me think of Benjamin Franklin, you know, he said everything in moderation, including moderation. So with your phone example, right, it's yeah. a good idea to unplug for a little bit, right? Unplug for 10 minutes or a day. But yeah, like unplugging or withdrawing from your partner for days on end. Yeah. And this is actually, thanks for saying this, Vicki, because this is one of the strategies I use with my couples. I quite often talk about, um, and actually it's interesting, it's really tied together. If you've ever read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books like Blink or The Tipping Point. I'm um, reading The Tipping Point right now. I just oh, started it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just a wonderful writer. He's Jamaican. I think I can't remember one of his parents is Jamaican. Um, so he's half Jamaican and uh, or half black. And he talks about uh, police officers. And, you know, when our pulse rate goes above 100, oftentimes we end up not being able to make such rational decisions. Um, so how how does this how do I strategize that with couples? What I'll say to them is um, I talk about the 20 minute DPA the diffuse mm -hmm. physiological arousal thing that happens in our brains where when we get escalated, 
we become often irrational, angry, we either attack or withdraw, right? So I say to folks, when you when you see that happening or you know that's happening, first of all, what you can do is figure out in your body where it's happening, right? So when we get angry, um, sometimes we feel it in our chest, in our hands, and my I clench my teeth, wherever my anger might, or maybe I feel hot in my face, uh, wherever my anger may be coming up, I can feel it in my body. And if I know that this is going to go down a road with my partner where it's not going to go well, we can say, okay, let's take a break, take 20 minutes um, to allow this DPA chemical to, to remit completely, like just to totally go away. And during those 20 minutes, do not, you know, get on the phone and, you know, badmouth your partner. Just literally go read a magazine, sit in the sun, smell the roses, and then come on back if you can. Um, and you'll have a little bit more of a sort of rational way of discussing it because you're, you won't be seeing red, right? Um, but don't wait longer than 24 hours. That's the whole thing about, like you're talking about with the phone, maybe unplug for a day, but don't unplug for more than, well, you know what I mean? Unplug for the weekend, whatever you decide works well, but yeah, you you don't want to go, you don't want to do too much of anything or too little of anything. Ben Franklin moderation. Yeah. And then there's a difference between unplugging for a reason like you're going away for the weekend and you you know want to spend time in nature you don't want to be on your phone i think there's a difference between unplugging doing something for a reason and doing something for avoidance so unplugging for avoidance is completely different than going away for the weekend and wanting to be in nature or not having any service or you know anything like that yes and thank you so you're bringing me back around this is why i love you vicky you're bringing me (laughs) back around to that idea of the pain of any choice can hurt so why not make the pain pay yes when we are anxious we have we usually do one of two things we avoid uh, so we we withdraw to avoid dealing with the anxiety, right? Or we pursue. So in couples, there's usually a pursuer and a withdrawer. Usually that's the best match. <laughs> Not the best <laughs> match. Well, the best match in that if both people can work on themselves rather, again, than expecting your partner to change because everybody has mm. to change. Um, that's the most growth. That is the the, the best opportunity for, for the most growth, like I say to couples, it's really important to become a little bit more like your partner and have your partner become a little bit more like you. So yeah, to your point about anxiety and avoidance, they, they go hand in hand. And that's usually what gets people coming into to therapy, sex and couples therapy, particularly because they've been in this sort of homeostasis mode where it's been the same, the same, the same of either avoidance or uh, withdrawing or pursuit, attacking, etc., and it's not working for the couple. Back to Gottman and Schwartz, you know the the uh, f- uh, what is it the the four horsemen of the apocalypse that they talked mm-hmm. about. So well, actually, Malcolm Gladwell, by the way, Vicky, discusses Gottman and Schwartz in his books. He talks about their experiments uh, with thousands of couples, and I think I've talked about this before, where um, they would put couples in a room. Um, you know, same-sex couples, heterosexual couples, etc., uh, and and sort of measure them, measure their palms with sweating, the things that they would say. They would record them, um, and those four elements that they noticed that would lead to an eighty-one percent, eighty-one percent chance of breakup or divorce are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and resentment. All four of those that go on way too long uh, result in contempt. And once you hit contempt, it's kind of like becoming very rigid. It's hard to roll back from that. So being aware of that, where when couples come in, 
you know, if they allow me to, and I talk about this in the beginning, the couples therapy, sex therapy is much more directive than individual therapy. Um, that I'm sort of like the director or the, uh, uh, you know, private investigator, right? Where I'm going to kind of get in there and say, here's, here's what you're doing. That's great. Let's keep building on that. And here's where you might be going wrong. And we need to kind of uh, help you tweak that a bit. Well, and especially because individual therapy, the focus is on the individual, but couples therapy, your focus isn't on the individual people. It's on the relationship, right? That's, so so you right. say sometimes that the relationship is your client, not the, that's not right. the two people that are sitting in front of you. And I think that's important mm-hmm. because when you're in individual therapy, it's different. It's just mm-hmm. different. You're focusing on your own individual issues, outside factors that, Im- that impact your individual self. And in a relationship, mm-hmm. I think sometimes it gets tough because when you're sitting there with your partner, one person's feelings aren't necessarily more important than the other. It's it, both mm. things impact the relationship and yeah. it's really hard sometimes to take a step back and, you know, hold yourself accountable and take a bit, take, you know, the time to say, I did that wrong. That was my fault. I did that, yeah. you know? And, That's and even right. if you know that you do something like when I do this in my own relationship, if I do something that I know drives my partner nuts, I'm like, ah, damn it. I did it again. I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done that. Like, you know, I, yes. I know that drives you nuts and just calling myself out just to say, mm. I know that bothers you. I'm recognizing that I just did it. So I'm yes. going to call myself out for it. And it's hard. I don't like doing it. I hate it, but I do well, it. Well, <laughs> you know, that's that's empathy. And um, so let's take, for example, uh, the pain. Let's say a couple shows up and there's infidelity, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said before, the pain of any choice can hurt. So why not make the pain pay? Just recently and, and all the time, um, I had a, a new couple come in and there had been uh, multiple infidelities on his part, heterosexual couple, man and a woman. Um multiple infidelities and very painful for her. Um, and so it was just the first session. And, you, you know, usually, you know, I, I use what's called uh, the plicit model, which is this idea of giving kind of, you know, uh, I get permission from folks, consent to work in the way that I work and, you know, uh, limited uh, sort of information um, and then little bits of, of homework to take home. Um, mm-hmm. So usually I'm, I'm not, I, it's an introductory session. We're not usually doing lots of therapy in the first session, but interestingly uh, in this case, and in many cases, um, he was able to lean in when she talked about her pain, you know, they have two little kids and, you know, because typically men and heterosexual men quite often, it's very natural to go into the defensive posture because they don't want to fail their partners. You know, mm-hmm. I have a lot of empathy myself for men um, and what that's like when they feel that they've hurt their partner. So in being able to to take that sort of no blame, no shame, non-judgmental stance in our session, which is such a beautiful way to work. And I've had so many role models and teachers who have really held me to held held me to the held my feet to the fire to make me be able to do this um it was so beautiful in this session to provide that safe space for him to lean into her and to like you're talking about be accountable and say i am so sorry for your pain that you're still going through this and she just melted into a, a thousand tears which were tears of relief you know and i also think it can be hard for men um to hold her uh, the space of of your female partner as she's crying like that 
because you feel she's failing. But if you can see it as this is part of the healing process, she has to cry, heal, have your reassurance to move forward. And maybe that means she melts into your arms. And in those moments, I mean, this is what I, this is what I live for, <laughs> to see those moments of healing. Um, and, and even though it was hard for him, <sighs> suddenly there's just, rather than avoiding, right, there was just <sighs> sort of like letting the air out of the balloon. Wow, what a relief. And it's so fantastic to see that. And that does so much for them both mentally, you know, to, to, to yes. be able to have a break for your own mental health so that it's not yes. replaying the situation over and over in your head and thinking about it and how could something have gone differently or what could I have done or did yeah. this make this happen or did this make that happen? Like your brain just goes off on a, uh, on its own adventure and then you're just kind of along for the ride. So that must've been mm. so nice for them to be able to. Yeah. Have that safe space to just be open and, and release with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one of my clues was she said, he's my best friend, you know, oh. and, and he felt similarly about her. Um, and I think most couples come in really, I mean, most couples that, that I see come in really wanting something much better for the relationship. And as I've said before, probably um, if there's enough desire to make it work. It, it'll work and enough uh, ability to grow your social emotional intelligence to understand that you know you, you can be more empathic you can create a safer space for your partner to kind of say what's going on for them what they're feeling and you know just as important as what you're feeling is the choices that you make right so relationships are choice whether it's monogamy or consensual non-monogamy again you know more more topics we can talk about but but getting back to tolerating anxiety for growth i want to get to this idea um that we uh often have to tolerate what's different or makes us uncomfortable and this is where the subject of race comes in um or racism um you know addressing race in the room or addressing racism or and discrimination, um, is a way of avoiding facing what makes a person uncomfortable. And, and lots of folks want to kind of shrink away from it. And I will tell you that um, in my own experience, I'm uncovering layers of this myself. I mean, I, I've done a lot of work. I grew up in the city and, you know, very diverse places. I, I live in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I mean, it's very diverse and I, I love my city. I think it's beautiful and wonderful. Um, but even still, we all have little corners, right, where we might say things like, I, I grew up with a mother from the South, from Jacksonville, Florida, who would say, you know, there are microaggressions that we use and we don't even realize that we're doing it. Like my mom used to say, well, I don't care if that person is, you know, black or white or blue or red or green or it's mm -hmm. like, well, no, people aren't blue, you know, and they're not green. They're they're black, they're white, they're different shades of different colors um, mm. and, and, you know, all of that. So um, that's a way of avoiding, if you will, the truth of what is. Um, and so I'm still, uh, hopefully we're all still doing this work on ourselves. Um, and what I want to be clear that race is a social construction or invention by white people to create a hierarchy that benefits whites, right? So the committing of white supremacy, you know, I mentioned this book before about, about Layla, by Layla Saad that I'm going to be putting on my uh, website. It's called Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor by Layla F. Saad and a forward by Robin D'Angelo. And in the book, um, she talks a lot about that the committing of white supremacy 
tone policing, white silence, white exceptionalism. These are all terms um, that we that we need to be aware of and we need to be working on. Uh, color blindness, that idea that my mother would say, you know, I don't care if he's white, black, green, red, right, um, blue. Uh, that's a color blindness microaggression. Uh, Anti-blackness is another way of committing a microaggression. White saviorism, white centering, uh, tokenism, racist stereotyping. That, that can be against Asian people, Latinx people, uh, indigenous people, Arab people, biracial, multiracial people. Um, colorism is another um, kind of microaggressive way of um, committing racism. Um, cultural appropriation, which is the perception of dominance versus non-dominance, uh, creating a power dynamic. You know, show it shows up in industries like um, you know, fashion, uh, the hair industry, beauty, spirituality, religion, uh, wellness, music, cultural holidays you know, language, what's a better way of speaking or dressing, you know, this is where, you know, it kind of shows up and we have to be really aware. Um, and there are other terms like optical allyship, you know, looking like an ally with uh, BIPOC, BIPOC populations without really doing the work of exploring one's own white supremacy, potentially white apathy, white fragility, you know, it goes on and on. And, and with the sort of the trial that's going on now and sort of waiting for the verdict, you know, and, and also what happened with um, the young man recently. Um, Dante Wright. Thank you. Yeah, Dante Wright. Um, and Adam Toledo. And there's just a, yeah. Oh, and so many. Breonna Taylor. I mean, you know, you name it, it goes on and on. Um, we have a responsibility as persons of white privilege to become good allies, activists, advocates, and accomplices to dismantle racist systemic structures. And people might say, what does that have to do with sex and couples therapy? Well, <laughs> it has a lot to do with it because in the work that I do, there's all kinds of isms that come up. You know, there's sexism, there's racism, there's disabilism, there's, you know, in the room with two people or more, um, there's naturally a hierarchy. You know, who's feel who's got more power? Who's uh, dominant here? And so that especially with couples, whether they're same sex couples or they're opposite sex couples, um, transgender couples, we we I have a responsibility to help people see in the coupling that the best way forward is to develop an egalitarian relationship, one of fairness, one where both people are seen as important, not one over the other. Make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. I think it's important. And I think it's something that is tough. <laughs> or it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's interesting. Well, it's a little ugly and it's a little messy. And, you know, I myself in doing this work, and again, I think of myself as somebody who's pretty um, aware and I've done a lot of work on myself. And still, you know, I think what's hard for people is the worst thing, I think, is to feel shame, to feel embarrassment. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. little, these are icky, awful feelings. And, you know, what do we do? We avoid that stuff. You know, we avoid feeling ashamed quite often because it's uncomfortable, right? Um, yeah. And but, I think especially around the topic of race, it's it's tough because when you avoid the topic or when you avoid 
educating yourself or acknowledging things that are difficult because it makes you feel shame or it makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You're doing a disservice to the people that don't have that option, you know? And yeah. I think it's, that's right. As, as somebody that, uh, you know, as a white group of people, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, acknowledging that, you know, when people say white privilege and everyone's like, Oh, I have to had to work just as hard as anybody. That's not the point. The point of something like white privilege is that inherently due to the color of your skin, you do not have the same barriers as other people that might be darker than you. That that's what it is. And, and, and everyone is like, no, it's not, I had to work. I was never handed anything. That's, that's Mm -hmm. making it very concrete for an issue that that's not your, it's like, you're missing the point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, I just hit my hand. (laughs) (laughs) It whacked my hand on the desk. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Feel very passionate about this. (laughs) No, I know. And you know, it's funny. My, my partner this morning was talking about, uh, you know, think about, imagine there's a a blonde child in a classroom, you know, and there are uh, brunette children in the classroom and the brunette children are allowed to have chocolate milk and the blonde kids aren't. Mm-hmm. And and the blonde child raises his or her hand and says, "Hey, you know, I, you know, I I, I really want to try that. You know, I, I want to try that um, chocolate milk. Why can't I? Um, you know, don't I matter?" Um, and the teacher, if the teacher says, "Well, well, sure, we all matter. Yeah, we all matter here. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, you know, you can't have that chocolate milk. <laughs> Kid's gonna be like." <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're saying I matter, but I still can't have what they have. So right. this, this is uh, what you're saying, Vicki, is that when I walk out of my door every day, I walk out in my white skin. And I was handed that. I am mm-hmm. lucky. Many people who are living in black skin or, you know, uh, there's different shades of black skin, right? Or they're living in their Asian skin or they're living in their uh, Latinx skin, Um their Arab skin, you know, or whatever color, you know, darker than white, they are walking out of their door in that skin and they cannot change that. And so they are, you know, it's it's different coming out of the gate at the horse race. It's just different. And no one did anything to intentionally mean for that to happen. (laughs) It just happened. So if you're lucky and you're in your white skin, you know, you just know that you're lucky. Hmm. And, and we can help others. We can help others um, by talking about this, by having those uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. And I think it's, it's just hard. And I hear it all the time, I, especially now with everything in the news, just listening to people weigh in on it. It's just so, I just think it's so important to, to really hit home that privileges and <clears throat> it's not necessarily the presence of an advantage. It's the the lack of a disadvantage. <laughs> so it's just, mm-hmm. it's important. And it's, it, you know, being able mm-hmm. to yeah, that's right. even talk about this, right. Yeah. The way that yeah. you and I, mm-hmm. as two white women are talking about this is yeah. different than if, you know, we were yeah. not two white women or if, you know, mm-hmm. if one of us was black or, I mean, I'm middle Eastern, but I don't look very middle Eastern. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, you're middle so, Eastern, it's different. so you're middle Eastern American. Yeah, Middle East. There you go. And yeah. um, where from the Middle East? Lebanon. I'm I'm 100 oh. percent Lebanese. Both sides mm-hmm. of my family um, mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. over from Lebanon. Both sets of my great grandparents came over. Mm-hmm. But even you know, looking at me to my cousins, who my cousins are also both full blooded mm-hmm. Middle Eastern Americans. Same, both from Lebanon. Mm-hmm. 
my cousins look more Middle Eastern than I do mm-hmm. just based on different features. Right. So the, even yeah. the way that when people are looking at us, they're always looking at me, they're like, well, what are you? And I was like, what do you mean? What? Are you? <laughs> like, what? It's just the, the way that it gets talked about for different people. It can be uncomfortable, but it's also just the mm-hmm. conversation is different and we have to be open to having those different types of conversations with different types of people so that you get more comfortable talking about them. Like even right now, I'm nervous that I'm going to say the wrong thing. Sure. Sure. You know, but I'm still doing it and I'm still talking about it. And I might say the wrong thing. And if I say the wrong thing, I apologize, educate me so that I can make sure that I don't make that same mistake the next time, you know, but I think it's, it's important to, to talk about it anyway. Yeah. And I think that's why I have hesitated to, to talk about this topic because you're right. We are two white women. And what I'd like to do is have on some guests of color, um, mm-hmm. I've been I've actually been thinking about that this week. I have some folks in mind, I think, who could speak to this topic beautifully because they are therapists of color or people of color. And I'd like to just open up the the microphone to them because they speak to it way better than you or I ever could. Absolutely. And if you are one of those people, reach out. Let us know Please. if you have something that you'd like to say or, you know, if you have a, a take on an issue that you'd really like to talk to us about and just mm-hmm. like have it. I would, we would love to hear it. So feel free, reach out via phone, DM, send us a carrier pigeon, whatever you need to do. A carrier pigeon. I love it. I love it. Uh, So, you know, there is a quote I wanted to remind folks of, because I think, look, fear of, of anything that makes us feel uncomfortable is rooted in our amygdala. Um, It's also rooted in, in long ingrained habits, but you know, there's that uh, Rilke quote, Rainier Maria Wilke, Rilke, sorry, from Letters to a Young Poet in 1929. And that poem goes as follows. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. And if we can be gentle with ourselves in understanding that we all have little corners of ourselves that we don't even know, right? It's, I talk to people sometimes about, um, you know, not sort of not knowing what we don't know. So when we begin to talk about these things, we can explore um, those areas of ourselves that we're not familiar with, that we've never explored. And, and to be gentle with ourselves is really important. And that helps us be gentle with others. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about today is, is, is some of the other isms um, that go on in therapy. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Okay, good. So, uh, you know, talking about sort of sexism, right, or misogyny, we started to talk about this um, discrimination against LGBTQIA plus populations, um, discrimination against those with disabilities, illnesses, the elderly, you know, ageism, right? Lots of this comes up in in sex and couples therapy. And I want to help people uh, begin to figure out how to cope with their own anxiety about it, which then may become depression. You know, when, when anxiety goes on for a long time, it gets exhausting and we can become depressed. So one of the things I, I really enjoy talking about with my clients is is where some of the isms are rooted. Uh, we're, we're taught and we've been taught uh, for a long time. We have, uh, you know, religious teachings, right? No, no matter what faith or spirituality you are, um, Lots of these core beliefs are, are rooted in that. Um, and so 
You know my favorite David Schnark, right? Dr. Schnark. Um, he has a great quote. Um, he says, Is it any wonder that so many people have difficulty integrating their spirituality and sexuality when the image of our spiritual icons being sexually engaged is blasphemous? Is it a sign of individual pathology, or is it rather the reflection of pathogenic sexual dualism? When during church services, a parishioner becomes both horrified and preoccupied with his or her sexual fantasies of the saints. He goes on to say, in Hinduism, for example, genital representations are visually prominent within temples, and their Bible is replete, or well-supplied, with tales of the gods' sexual exploits and adventures. Yet Hinduism does not advocate promiscuity or temple orgies. Women traditionally veil their faces, and modesty is valued. Such customs stem from the exception... Sorry. Such customs stem from the acceptance of an ever-present human sexuality rather than the compartmentalization and rejection of it as sinful. So there's Schnark, you know, just normalizing sex, right? You know, why are we so afraid of sex? Because we get taught this, you know, in church and, and growing up. Um, so I, I just think that's a, a just a wonderful quote. Uh, it creates lots of great conversations with my clients. Um, and then as I was thinking about that quote... Uh, you know, I looked over and there was my book here. I'll show this to you. The audience can't see it, but it's called Wild Ways <laughs> EQ. Um, and this is a, a Zen poems of EQ. Um, and it's Zen masters who are direct, raw, uh, and very sexual in the poetry. So <laughs> here's a great example, if I may. Um, this is from the written in the 1300s, by the way. So this is old stuff, 800 years old. Uh, one of the poems is as follows. The old woman was big hearted enough to elevate the pure monk with a girl to wed. Tonight, if a beauty were to embrace me, my withered old willow branch would sprout a new shoot. Isn't that great? That's so nice. Sprout a new <laughs> shoot. Here's another one. Um, my hand is no match for that of Mari. She is the unrivaled master of love play. When my jade stalk wilts, she can make it sprout. How we enjoy our intimate little circle. <laughs> so, so anyway, you know, where am I going with all of this? Uh, the, the larger point is this idea that, you know, we can go in, in the work uh, in sex and couples therapy. We can go from the macrocosm, right, sort of the, the big world uh, the way to make change and to create better mental health, less anxiety, less depression for the world is by starting on a microcosmic level, meaning, you know, with the individual or couples, you know, between people, right? Um, individuals, families, couples regarding mental health. You know, when we help each other and love each other, usually we feel better, right? Um, we have to take care of ourselves, of course. You know, I say to my couples all the time, well, you can't, you can't brush your partner's teeth. You know, you can't. You can't go to the bathroom for your partner. So we have to take care of ourselves to a degree, but we can also take care of each other by increasing empathy and creating safe spaces and, you know, standing up for yourself too. I think, you know, when we overgive, um, you know, or we pursue, we have to maybe learn to take better care of ourselves. Or if we withdraw, right, then we have to learn how to kind of stand still, if you will, with our partners, right? Kind of be there. Um, so, 
we're going to be doing a second part, right, to this. Um, and we're going to be kind of wrapping up in a second. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit right now about more more about what Schnark says um, about people who have who have trouble with those um, grounded responding. You know, grounded responding is necessary for good communication. Um, so when we attack, for example, because we're anxious, um, these are folks who are in the habit of having explosive tempers with short fuses uh, or saying cutting things in difficult conversations, right? That, that doesn't go well for relationship or breaking collaborative alliances when they're hurting, um, you know, yelling at the kids, sort of falling apart over small stuff, right? So, so through sex and couples therapy, we can do an exploration of belief systems developed throughout our childhood, our adolescence, looking at the messages we received, you know, the temples that are temp, not temple, templates that got set right by our parents and adults around us. Um, so we can keep what works and we can discard what is counterproductive, right? Right from old habits rooted in these kind of old belief systems. Um, and so that's the attacking when we're withdrawing, which isn't going well for a relationship. That might look like, um, you know, when your kids need discipline and you're not feeling like like doing that. Right. You just like to your example about the phone. Right. So turning it off, but leaving it off for too long because you're right. just avoiding. Um, or another example of withdrawing might be, you know, you're concerned your child is showing signs of a learning disability, but you don't seek help. Um, or, you know, your partner's having an affair, but you don't say anything because you don't want to upset the status quo or the homeostasis. Right. Um, or, you know, you don't say no to something because you don't want to get your partner mad or upset. So, you know, in the next um, podcast on mental health, because it's May, we're going to be talking about ways to develop oneself. Um, we talked about normal problems that couples faced in COVID before, right? So we're going to kind of build on what we're talking about today with Mental Health Month, build on those podcasts that we did prior and kind of go from there talking about how to optimize mental health. Through, through work with couples and, and, you know, sexual health and all that. So, all right. What do you think, Vicki? Are I we good to wrap great. up? I think we can wrap up here. Okay, wonderful. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to our part one of Mental Health in May. Um, and we will look forward to seeing you next time. Um, if you would like to check out my Facebook page. You can just go to the Sex and Couples Therapist. Um, if you would like to see what we've got on Instagram, just go to the Happy Ending Therapist. If you are interested in seeking sex and couples therapy, feel free to call the office at 508-990-9909. Check out the website at www.sexandcouplestherapy.com. And remember, always make time for pleasure, play, and passion. See you next time.